2: Hey, if you are a Revive Thoughts Patreon and you have access to our premium feed, ad-free feed, uh, the last and final installment of our Ethiopia deep dive is public for all to hear where we answer the question, was Ethiopia a a Christian nation, a a pre-reformed Christian nation? We we wrap it all up with all the buttons. We button it all up.
3: Absolutely. Definitely listen to this episode where we go through and walk through uh, the story of the Ethiopian version of... Martin Luther, who lived an actually very similar life to Martin Luther. And we really answer, I think, quite definitively, how much was the almost reformation in Ethiopia? What happened there? And how much did it inspire what happened in Europe? Click over, go over to Patreon and listen to that third part of the deep dive. It is the longest part, but it tells the final ends of the saga. And I think it does a really good job of wrapping up people's knowledge. So we're very excited about it. Go check it out and uh, join us on Patreon to get that deep dive part three.
2: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
3: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
4: A great fish was nothing uncommon in itself. There are many such fish in the sea. But the Lord prepared one for Jonah, in order that it might be the messenger of God to his soul—
2: Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered today. We're listening to a sermon by C.H. McIntosh. It was preached sometime in the late 1800s. Troy, how are you doing this week?
3: Doing great. Having a little break. Uh, Been very nice. Family climbed a nearby mountain, so we have never really climbed a mountain before. Very sore. And uh, the path could have been better marked. We definitely slipped down the mountain at different times because it was very muddy, but... uh, it was fun. we would never done it before. What about you, Jill? How are you?
2: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm also enjoying my to-do list is somewhat more manageable now, so I am enjoying that. It's it's been nice to be able to wrap my head around everything I got to get going on, including talking about C.H. Macintosh, a name that I was not familiar with, had never heard
3: of before research for this episode. <laughs> I knew a lot about Macintosh, um, the computer. The I was about like to Mac- call you out
2: so fast. I'm like, there's no. And way. then
3: there's Big Mac uh, from McDonald's, but I was not <laughs> aware of C. H. Macintosh, uh, the former pastor. Yeah. Also, since we have, I had a little bit more time on my hands, we were able to respond to a lot of you. We've been getting more emails, more messages, and hearing back from you, uh, all of you listeners, a lot more lately, which has been really cool. It's been interesting to see how church history has been uh, used in your your life to encourage you and move you and challenge you. And also just been really awesome hearing back from some of you and hearing some of your ideas for the podcast, too. So thank you so much for those of you who are writing in and sending us messages. And we just ask that you continue to do so. It's always really good to hear from you.
2: Absolutely. All right. So uh, C.H. McIntosh, this gentleman was born in Ireland in the 1820s. And uh, picture for me if you will a, a a nice household a regal household if you would his father was a captain in the Highland regiment and his mother was a lady of a noble house and he was involved in church growing up but uh, nothing substantial surfaced in his faith until he was about 18 years old and at the age of 18 there there were two things that happened in his life that led to his conversion and the first was that uh, he was chatting a lot with his sister. His sister was away, but they kept communicating. They were were pen pals. They would write back and forth. And his sister uh, became a passionate believer and was encouraging him to turn his life over to Christ. And so that was pressing on his heart. And he also happened upon a book that he started reading called The Operations of Christ. It was by John Darby. And this book talked a lot about Christ working for us and these two things, you know, the, the encouragement of a sister in this book uh, really led to him explaining how he turned his life over to Christ.
3: Some of the people we cover on our show become Christians and immediately leap into ministry kind of headfirst. Charles Spurgeon starts preaching at a very young age, Samuel P. Jones, D.L. Moody. These kind of people just go straight for it. But Macintosh was not one of these guys at all. He said, looking back, quote, Indeed, I may say that nothing but the most solemn sense of responsibility could have ever induced me to stand up in public. As someone who doesn't really like to speak in public all that much either, I can actually really yeah. uh, relate to this. It's something that's definitely more of like I feel that I have to go do it because I know that's what God is telling me to do, not so much something I, I look forward to or desire mm-hmm. to do. He went to work various jobs in Ireland and eventually started a school, but he always had a passion for Christ. He would spend the school holidays, weekends, going around the countryside, preaching the gospel. He did not see himself called to full-time ministry, but wanted to be useful as much as he could. In 1843, he wrote his first ministry track. It's kind of funny because looking at his life, it looked obvious to me that he was heading into ministry, but he doesn't really seem to see it happening. And the school he starts had a special method for teaching the classical languages. He created his own method for teaching languages like Greek and Latin. It's, it's pretty impressive. And it tells you he's a very intelligent man, But it was not meant to be, because in 1845, Ireland gets hit with a terrible famine.
2: Yeah, that was the first thing that crossed my mind. When I looked at this dude's name, and I saw when he was born, and I saw he's in Ireland, right? I don't know much about Ireland, but one of the things I'm aware is big potato famine in the mid-1800s. It was smack dab in the middle of this guy's life here uh this famine lasted about 5 years, 5 to se- 7 years depending on who you who you ask 1845 to 1850 some say it lingered on until 1852 it was devastating to the irish people there before the famine there was 8.2 million people there after the famine there were 6.6 million people there well over a million people uh, that died due to starvation and I mean that's that's one in eight people, right? If if you have a, a big family, that's that's one person in your family that is, is or, or in your friend group, whatever it may be, and that's just one in eight people die. That's not including uh, that's no no one's having a good time. Like everyone is, is very fatigued, very ill, uh, due to malnourishment. So you might be living, but it certainly you know wasn't a good quality of life there. So hungry, uh, so fatigued so ill due to malnourishment. And because of this, uh, an estimated 2.5 million people left the country, fled the country, trying trying to find uh, hope, life, food, anywhere else.
3: These are numbers similar to the Cambodian genocide, which really obviously set Cambodia quite a ways back. Granted, in Cambodia's case, it was killings and not starvation that caused the death. So there's a little bit of a difference there, but the idea of losing that much population in the short time frame of five years has a huge impact not just only on the people who obviously die and and it has this has an impact not just on those who died obviously but the people who survive as well their descendants and the children and grandchildren that come after are impacted by what their parents or grandparents went through not to mention if you were a child and you survived you know you might be dealing with stunted growth famine all these things compounded into the situation Many scholars say that the potato famine also led to starvation in other parts of Europe because much of Europe got their potatoes from Ireland. About 100,000 Europeans who relied on Irish potatoes across Europe were thought to have died because of the lack of potatoes, which, I mean, that means there's, you know, famines happening in other lands because of this potato blight in Ireland. And that many believe this is what helped fuel the revolutions of 1848, which caused many European countries, people were hungry and they had revolutions. So this, you know, famine affected a lot more of the world than just Ireland. This led to a complete change in culture, history, and really changed Ireland's relationship with Britain as well. Now imagine trying to run a school on classical languages in a poor part of the country and preaching the gospel on your free time during all of this. I mean, just imagine trying to survive a famine like that. What was interesting to me is he really doesn't mention it all that much in his life. I was looking for quotes or anything by him, even... Like when I would look up famine quotes in his life, he would be talking about the famine that Abraham went through or the famine in Egypt, like in his commentaries. He's not ever really talking about how it affected him uh, personally all that much, which I always think is very interesting. You find that a lot in these church history guys, whereas we, if we lived through something like that, we would be telling people our thoughts on it. A lot of times these guys hardly mention some of the things that I'm most interested in. Like what was it like for you to preach the gospel and hold on to God's hope through a five-year Famine and uh, and they don't hardly bring it up. They're and they're not really focused on that aspect of their life all that much. And yet, you can only imagine how much it would have affected them.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator
2: Yeah. So in 1853, after years of struggling to keep the boarding school in a particularly poverty stricken part of Ireland going, he he had to close it. It just wasn't working. And he told his friends later on that there was nothing on earth that could get him to start another one. You know, it was he was just looking at that chapter of his life closed and uh, he tried with some other things. He dabbled in some other things. He farmed for a little bit. But he felt the Lord was calling him to surrender his life to, to ministry services. And so he began preaching and writing books. And uh, he would write a few books, uh, specifically commentaries on the Old Testament that would become popular and, and, and circulated pretty well there in that area. And, you know, this is going into, you know, the, the later half of the 1800s here. Revivals all around the world are are popping off. You know, we talk about a lot, especially in America, Ireland is no exception. There is this large revival. It's titled the Evangelical Irish Revival, and it led to hundreds of thousand people uh, coming to know Christ during that era. Some people, the optimistic numbers will say that there are a tenth of the entire population of Ireland was converted to Christianity during this Evangelical Irish Revival. And this revival would spread out from Ireland and hit Wales and England and Scotland as well.
3: McIntosh both played a role as an evangelist and preacher during the revival, as well as he was himself deeply affected by having lived through it. And another episode, we may go into more detail on this famous revival. I thought it was worth noting that 10 years after so much suffering in Ireland, many people were now coming to Christ. Maybe that was part of the way how the Lord cleared the way to open that door for and Christianity to spread was, you know, during that time of suffering, I, during the famine, it would have been very hard, but the revival that came afterwards was very good for Ireland as well. Lastly, something else to know about Macintosh, he was a Plymouth Brethren, and he got in trouble one time for saying the line, heavenly humanity of Christ in one of his commentaries. People interpreted this as rejecting Christ's humanity and accused the Plymouth Brethren of deny, denying humanity. McIntosh denied this and the group had to defend themselves and show that, hey, we believe 100% humanity of Christ as well. This became a big controversy for them. And I feel like that's the kind of thing that happens. People sometimes think that the theology or the twittering or whatever people do where they argue back and forth online and stuff like this is new, where people didn't used to do this. This is something that's been going on for a very long time where someone uses a word incorrectly and everyone gets into a big Row about it, gets into a big fight about it. That is something that's been happening for a while. Macintosh ended up going through it quite, uh, quite a big fight over it himself. However, people did enjoy him. Spurgeon, who did not always get along with the Plymouth Brother and had a lot of pushback for them, said that Macintosh had very worthy commentaries and especially loved his commentary on Genesis. And D.L. Moody said of Macintosh that he would trade every book he had, minus the Bible, if it meant he could keep Macintosh's commentaries.
4: As the ship was sailing along, suddenly the Lord flung a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to send them to the bottom. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And the Lord God prepared a vine to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased some of his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the vine. But God also prepared a worm. The next morning, at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant, so that it soon died and withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God sent a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than this, he exclaimed. Jonah 1, 4 and 17, and chapter 4, 6 through 8. Nothing helps the Christian to endure the trials of his path so much as the habit of seeing God in everything. There is no circumstance, even if it seems so trivial or so average, which may not be regarded as a messenger from God, if only the ear is circumcised to hear, and the mind spiritual to understand the message. If we lose sight of this valuable truth, life, in many instances at least, will be but a dull monotony, presenting nothing beyond the most ordinary of circumstances. On the other hand, if we could but remember, as we start each day on our course— that the hand of our Father can be traced in every scene, if we could see in the smallest, as well as in the most weighty circumstances, traces of the divine presence, how full of deep interest would each day's history be found? The book of Jonah illustrates this truth in a very remarkable way. There we learn what we need so often to remember, that there is nothing ordinary to the Christian. Everything is extraordinary. The most commonplace things, The simplest circumstances are displayed in the history of Jonah and show the evidence of divine intervention. To see this instructive feature, it is not necessary to enter upon the detailed exposition of the book of Jonah. We only need to notice one expression, which occurs in it again and again, namely, the Lord prepared. In chapter 1, the Lord sends out a wind into the sea, and this wind had in it a solemn voice for the prophet's ear. Had he been awake to hear it? Jonah was the one who needed to be taught. For him, the messenger was sent out. The poor pagan mariners, no doubt, had often encountered storms. To them, it was nothing new, nothing special, nothing but what fell to the common life of sailors. Yet, it was special and extraordinary for one individual on board, though that one was asleep on the inside of the ship. In vain did the sailors seek to counteract the storm. Nothing would succeed until the Lord's message had reached the ears to whom it was sent. Following Jonah a little further, we perceive another instance of what we may term seeing God in everything. He is brought into new circumstances, yet he is not beyond the reach of the message of God. The Christian can never find himself in a position in which his father's voice cannot reach his ear or his father's hand meet his view, for his voice can be heard, his hand seen in everything. So when Jonah had been cast into the sea, the Lord prepared a great fish. Here, too, we see that there is nothing ordinary to the child of God. A great fish was nothing uncommon in itself. There are many such fish in the sea. But the Lord prepared one for Jonah, in order that it might be the messenger of God to his soul. Again, in chapter 4, we find the prophet sitting on the east side of the city of Nineveh, in sullenness and impatience, grieved because the city had not been overthrown. He was entreating the Lord to take away his life. He would seem to have forgotten the lesson learned during his three days sojourn in the sea, and he therefore needed a fresh message from God, and the Lord prepared a vine. This is very instructive. There was surely nothing uncommon in the mere circumstance of a vine. Other men might see a thousand vines, and moreover might sit beneath their shade, and yet see nothing extraordinary in them. But Jonah's vine exhibited traces of the hand of God, and forms a link, an important link, in the chain of circumstances through which, according to the design of God, the prophet was passing. The vine now, like the great fish before, though very different in its kind, was a messenger of God to his soul. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the vine. He had before longed to depart, but his longing was more the result of impatience and chagrin than of holy desire to depart and be at rest forever. It was the painfulness of the present rather than the happiness of the future which made him wish to be gone. This is often the case. We are frequently anxious to get away from present pressure, but if the pressure were removed, the longing would cease. If we longed for the coming of Jesus and the glory of his blessed presence, circumstances would make no difference. We would then long as ardently to get away from those times of pressure and sorrow. Jonah, while he sat beneath the shadow of the gourd, thought not of departing, And the very fact of his being exceedingly glad for the vine proved how much he needed that special messenger from the Lord. It served to manifest the true condition of his soul when he uttered the words, Take, I beg you, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord can make even a vine the instrument for developing the secrets of the human heart. Truly the Christian can say, God is in everything. The storm roars, and the voice of God is heard, a vine springs up in silence, and the hand of God is seen. Yet the vine is but a link in the chain. For the Lord prepared a worm, and this worm, minuscule as it was when viewed in the light of an instrument, was, nevertheless, as much the divine agent as was the great wind or the great fish. A worm, when used by God, can do wonders. It withered Jonah's vine and taught him, as it teaches us, a solemn lesson. True, it was only an insignificant agent, the power of which depended upon its work alongside the others. But this only illustrates the greatness of our Father's mind. He can prepare a worm, and he can prepare a terrible east wind, and make them both, though so different, conducive to his great designs. In a word, the spiritual mind sees God in everything. The worm, the whale, and the tempest, all are instruments in his hand. The most insignificant, as well as the most splendid agents, further his ends. The east wind would not have proved effectual, though it had been ever so powerful, if the worm had not done its appointed work. How striking is all this? Who would have thought that a worm and a scorching east wind could be joint agents in doing a work of God? Yet so it was. Great and small are only terms in use among men, and cannot apply to him who stoops down to behold the things that are in heaven, as well as the things that are on earth. They are all alike to him who sits on the circle of the earth. Jehovah can count the number of the stars, and while he does so, he can take knowledge of a falling sparrow. He can make the whirlwind his chariot, and a broken heart his dwelling place. Nothing is great or small with God. The believer, therefore, must not look upon anything as ordinary, for God works in everything. True, he may have to pass through the same circumstances to meet the same trials, to encounter the same reverses as other men, but he must not meet them in the same way. Nor interpret them on the same principle. Nor do they convey the same report to his ear. He should hear the voice of God and heed his message in the most trifling as well as in the most momentous occurrence of the day. The disobedience of a child or the loss of an estate or the death of a friend should all be regarded as divine messengers to his soul. So also when we look around in the world, we should see God is in everything. The overturning of thrones. The crashing of empires, the famine, the pestilence, and every event that occurs among nations exhibit traces of the hand of God and utter a voice for the ear of man. The devil will seek to rob the Christian of the real sweetness of this thought. He will tempt him to think that, at least, the commonplace circumstances of everyday life exhibit nothing extraordinary, but are the same as what happens to other men. But we must not surrender to him in this. We must start our on our course every morning with this truth vividly impressed on our mind. God is in everything. The sun that rolls along the heavens in splendid brilliancy and the worm that crawls along the path have both alike been prepared by God and, moreover, could both alike cooperate in the development of his unsearchable designs. I would observe in conclusion that the only one who walked in the abiding remembrance of the above, precious, and important truth— was our blessed master. He saw the Father's hand and heard the Father's voice in everything. This appears preeminently in the season of the deepest sorrow. He came forth from the garden of Gethsemane with those memorable words, the cup which my Father has given me, will I not drink it? So recognizing in the fullest manner that God is in everything.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Todd Nicholas. Todd is a husband and a father of three young children, and he serves in a local preaching ministry as well as remote work in establishing Bible teaching, virtual events, and digitizing old sermon messages from cassettes. He works in early phase research in the pneumatical industry and he and his family reside in Pennsylvania PA area. He loves reading, watching soccer, spending time with family and listening to the Revive Studios podcast. Hey, that's us. That's pretty neat. Uh, Digitizing old sermons from cassettes. That's that's, uh, right up our alley, isn't it, Troy?
3: It is. I'm a big fan of it. I actually messaged with him a little bit back and forth on that. So I think it's pretty cool that he's doing that. All right, we hope you enjoyed this episode by C.H. McIntosh. If you did enjoy this episode, or if you did not, or if you just want to have some ideas or want to hear from us, we would love to hear from you. We've, as I said at the top of the show, been really enjoying getting all the feedback and many, many different messages. You can go to our website and contact us through there, or you can send us an email at revivedoughts at gmail.com. But we've been, lovely, been loving hearing from you, and we've also been appreciating how many people have been volunteering to read sermons for the first time again uh lately so that's been really helpful too so thank you for all of you who have been reaching out this is Troy Angel and this is Revive Thoughts
0: support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant